You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Folks, holiday gift-giving season is upon us, and nothing says I care about you almost as much as climbing than a gift that supports the Enormacast. So look to our groovy sponsors when reluctantly parting with that hard-won road trip money. Black Diamond has the best climbing gear, ski gear, and apparel to keep you warm, happy, and sexy while you're doing it. La Sportiva has the best climbing shoes and mountaineering boots in the universe. And Maxim Ropes, well, if you give your go-to partner a rope, hell, it's practically yours. And if you miss Cyber Monday or Tuesday or whatever the hell it was, and you still want a discount, don't forget our coupon codes. Go to peterwgilroy.com for gifts so romantic don't forget you live in a van and entry Norma at checkout. Head over to blazepecs.com for that climber who has nearly everything and entry NormaCast. But go to bonfirecoffee.com for what really amounts to a smile in a cup and entry Norma at checkout for a discount. But if you're overwhelmed, just go to normacast.com, click on the banners to find out what's going on. Either way, give with confidence when you support the NormaCast, the podcast that's going to drown out all that holiday babble until you can get yourself back on belay. Uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, yeah, it's a big place. That's, out. Out town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it's it out. Out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. No, later, anytime. Just for you on your birthday, we love you very much, so have a fucking birthday. Please have it fucking birthday. Oh yeah, folks, it's a birthday episode. I've been doing this five years. Can you believe that I had to look back at the beginning and check out what was going on way back then? But I published the first Enormacast on December 9th, 2011. That's right, five years in the game. Happy birthday to the royal we here at the Enormacast. That's how lonely it is here. I have to tell myself, happy birthday. Anyway, welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is December 5th, about 10.30, Mountain Standard Time, the dark time. On today's show, very special guest, Mr. Conrad Anker. 
came all the way to Carbondale just to do the podcast. Came very much out of his way. It was his idea. I didn't have to bug him. We'd been talking about it for a little bit, but uh, he's the one that called me up and said, hey, I'm going to be in Colorado. I'll, I'll come over to Carbondale. I want to get this done. It means a lot to me. So meant a lot to, uh, to this guy as well for him to come over. So did I mention that this is episode 118? Did I get to that? I don't know. If I did, I'll cut this part out. I think the thing to mention before we get to a uh, pretty serious um, conversation with Conrad is that uh, in between recording this and uh, just a few days ago, Conrad returned from his trip that he mentions to uh, the Himalaya with David Lama, and uh, he had a heart attack. God damn, he called me up a couple days ago and uh, said, yeah, how's it going? I want to touch base. I want to tell you about something, and it told me this whole story that's now out to the public about being at 20,000 feet and having a heart attack. He recognized the symptoms, got down. Luckily, a bunch of things fell into place to get him back to Kathmandu and to a well-run hospital, and they uh, they put a stint in there. Saved his life. Yeah, he's home recovering now, and it's been put out there in the public just a couple days ago. Uh, National Geographic's got an article about it. At their website, I linked on uh, the post here at normacast.com, but I'm sure it'll sort of disseminate over the interwebs before you've even heard this. Yeah, crazy, totally crazy, like one of the sort of fittest guys I can imagine, climbed Everest without oxygen not too long ago, struck down by some uh, something funky in his heart. I think he reckons that maybe that uh, oxygen-less ascent, well, not oxygen-less, he was breathing the oxygen that was in the air. But anyway, supplemental oxygen-less ascent maybe did a little damage to it, and it, it came to fruition on this climb. So that's really interesting because uh, much of the subject matter we talk about here is is about mortality in the mountains. So I'm glad that uh, in this case, the enormous bump didn't just bump him off, and he came home a little worse for wear, but, uh, but living, and uh, hopefully a path back to... Uh, level of fitness that'll get him out in the mountains again. So I'm wishing you well, Conrad, and glad this isn't a tribute episode to you, sir. Very glad I didn't have to make any sort of weird decisions about what to do with this interview. Thanks for that. I know, it's all about me, isn't it? Anyway, I think that's all I have to say about this interview. Just kick back and enjoy the wisdom that comes with a life in the mountains. Check one two three. Check one two three, and it's ten twenty here in Carbondale, Colorado. Conrad Anchor. When I do media, I timestamp it for the benefit of both parties involved. Yeah, man. So because there's oftentimes someone else that is that's not part of it is editing it. So check 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 one two three. Not here at the Normacast for not. (laughs) You don't have interns. A highly sought after internship. People are bribing you to get their kids and to intern with. I actually do get frequent requests for internships. Honestly, the truth is, is that it's so seat of my pants. I do things like ten hours before they're supposed to be done, at the most. Um, that it would be really hard for me to to tell an intern what the hell to do or like, I don't know. I mean, I know it could be done, but well, I'm no, just it, like the show is you and yeah. you alone. That makes it authentic and real. But you've got Miles in the in the wing. So yeah, hopefully, <laughs> he's your right. intern. Got it. By the time he's old <laughs> enough to do it, I definitely hope that I don't know my fortunes have changed. <laughs> um. All right, cool. So, uh, yeah, let's roll roll in. Um, sitting up in the the normal studio, the the mobile studio. Oh wait, no, I gotta I gotta pr- bring this up at least a little bit, just uh, wrap it up, and then it's, unless it's too bright, that's good. Because then we got Sopras in the church. Um, yeah, we're sitting up in the mobile studio across from a Catholic church uh, with Mount Sopras in the view uh with conrad anchor who's who's gone above and beyond the normal call to come on the normal cast you you went way out of your way hours out of your way to come over to carbondale and sit 
in the authentic mobile studio. Welcome, Conrad Anchor. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. It's all worth it. Yeah, it's. I mean, and this has all been by your sort of. I didn't have to. I mean, you just suddenly emailed me. Hey, I'm going to be in Colorado, which is like, yeah, uh, it's the same state, but you know, you were going to be three hours away. You got to run back to Vail after this. But I totally appreciate the dedication to coming on the Enormacast. I mean, a, a man of the world such as yourself, someone. I mean, who who like media outlets are probably constantly bugging. <laughs> no. no, no. I don't know. Maybe my my image of your life is is quite a bit different, but that's why you're here. Well, they're the 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 young darlings are who the media likes. The so, young. Yeah, <laughs> Ashima. Yeah, it's, they're like CBS News wants to talk to right. her. But I'm uh, plying my trade. Awesome. Mid level marketing manager at North Face and public speaking work every now and then and so i'm on the road in between things so i was at the museum of natural history in denver last night great place wonderful paleontological collection look at bones um particularly they are the repository of the big pit up by snowmass that came out with the mammoth and the mastodon all right the and the bison thing. yeah so it's kind of neat got a behind the scenes so and i'm gonna go climbing this afternoon so it's a oh really? It's Where a are you double, going? Oh, you gotta let me know. I've got my gear, and I've got. I don't have to be responsible until seven thirty this evening. Oh man! <laughs> all right, all right. We'll talk yeah. about that after the show. Um, you know, right there, you you made a joke about how the the um, you know, they're interested in the young, and that that actually kind of leads to my first question or my first way of starting this off is that, you know, and this m might sound like some sort of backhanded insult, but uh. You've become a little bit of an old man of climbing. No offense, okay. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that you've, you know, your career has followed that arc of of a lot of careers that aren't cut short, which is, I think, the the sort of essential part of my question. Um, from you know this young gun, you know this guy, you were you were under the mentorship of of Mug Stump. You were you were the young. I mean, you had that long blonde hair. It was amazing, <laughs> and you've you've gone over the arc and you you've you've become this guy who you know when i watched meru like the superlatives that that jimmy talked about you with i mean i just embarrassed you a minute ago that must have been you know like cool but also maybe a little embarrassing to watch those guys in renan just talked about you as this like icon they trusted you your leadership all those sorts of things so did you think you know at any point that young, you know, dirtbag van guy that you would even make it to this point? I mean, or was it just a day-by-day -day kind of thing back then? It was pretty much a day-by-day. -day. There was a moment when I was 14 hiking out of the Sierras with our family. We'd take a two-week pack trip every summer. And it was the last day coming down out of the, um, the mountains. And there was this moment in between the trees, I was like, this is where I'm happiest. So everything became a way to spend more time outdoors. And it went from hiking up peaks to then more serious peaks, uh, things like that. So that's kind of that part. Um, I mean, I never thought I would be a, um, a, a where I am here. So I have some roots right here into the uh, Carbondale area. So just mm -hmm. a little um, backstory on, on myself. Um, I was born in San Francisco. My father's side of the family is from Tuolumne County, and uh, his father's Danish, and they're from, uh, they were up in Ukiah, and my grandmother's side was from Big Oak Flat. And then my mother's from Dresden, and my dad uh, was stationed over in Germany after the war. They started a family, came back, and then um, was there in California, and then eventually in 1972 moved to Japan for three years, and then Hong Kong for two years, and then Frankfurt, Germany. And at this time, my dad had um, started work with the um, Federal Reserve. He was a bank examiner, then he went to work with a private bank, and he specialized in doing uh, loans to uh, communist countries. And so that was when we were in Germany. And in the last uh, bit, he was, uh, they moved him to China, so he was on, in Beijing. And at that time, I was like either live with my grandparents or go to a boarding school. So I came here to the Roaring Fork Valley and went to CRMS from 79 to 81. So, oh, that's right. I knew that. And so when I look up here at Sopris and the sprawl, I drove around the valley for 15 minutes this morning. I was just kind of shocked at it. But this was um, a lot of um, 
that what I did in the backcountry in sort of as a young adult, but not being mentored by my, by my dad and his buddies, but other fellow students and the instructors there, that was sort of a, but I, I never really thought, oh, I want to become a professional climber because there wasn't like professional baseball players were legit. You could be, right. I mean, you could look up to Nolan Ryan and you would be like, yeah, there's that. That's something that's great. And it's inspiring, but there wasn't, I mean, now you can be a professional climber. Kids look in the gym, they know about Tommy Caldwell and Alex and, it's a it's a path that they can seek out to it. But. You know, I was in. I always talk about I was in this transition zone um, between maybe kind of like when that was sort of the newest thing. Like, ah, oh, those guys are making a living, like living as a professional climber. While while you were young, it wasn't even an option. Um, but it's a strange new option out there. This professional climberism. Um, but in a lot of ways, I look at you as as one of these guys who's like really the professional. You know, I think that um, you often are this liaison between, I mean, you're just down at the at Museum of Natural History. Like, I think maybe you are one of these people that the sort of mainstream knows as well as anybody in climbing. Well, perhaps. Um, the There's many ways you can be tied into the climbing business, whether you're um, working as a sales rep, as a mountain guide, um, in, in some grand way a normal cast is part of it um, yes but then to be um a, a sort of professional paid to, to go climbing and it's always we're experiential we're storytellers so there's never no one unless you're in competition climbing but if you're in adventure climbing no one really ever wins you come out and you have stories and you're able to tell them and share them with that and that's um with the change in media and how it's how when we started out and there was a couple climbing magazines and they would show up when you're doing your homework and you'd <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you'd read it completely to now where, um, I mean, Everest got Snapchatted this year. So that was like the big breakthrough on, mm -hmm. on that mountain. So the media environment's really changed. Mm -hmm. And you run, um, what's your capacity at the North Face? What's your official job? My official job is uh, athlete team captain. Okay. And so uh, this is 33 years ago, this September, I started working with them. And that was at a Holly Bar retail store in Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. And um, we've progressed with them. And starting in 87, I got a mountain jacket and a VE25 tent and a sleeping bag. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> went up, drove up to the Kachatna Spires, did a trip and then have stayed connected with them. Um, and so a lot of the work I do now is with CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, our partners that we do with uh, the environment and social outreach and then with our athlete team. So um, finding athletes, recruiting them and mm -hmm. helping them develop, helping them translate what the brand is looking for and what the athlete is looking for and um, making that together. So it's a, it's great in that when North Face does well, then all the, the, the brands that are in our space, um, the Mountain Hardware, Patagonia, Arcteryx, Solomon, um, all the cool, all these brands, we're all, we're all together and we're all mm -hmm. um, working with the same people. So I always try to foster a sense of goodwill between what North Face does and the other brands that are out there. Right. And I want to go on this little quick tangent, um, even though I want to focus on kind of your your climbing and your life, but I've got you here. Yeah. And I've always wanted to have someone who manages athletes on the show because um, I think people are are very either confused or, or misinformed about what all that means. But the only question I want to ask you here today is, in your estimation, what do you think a company – your your company or the company you work for, North Face or whoever, gets out of sponsoring these climbers and what are they looking for? Um, because it sometimes it's a little you wonder like, well what you know, what do you get out of sending these folks around the world on trips? And some companies, you know, it they have a little bit of a mixed feeling about it. I mean, I know Patagonia, at least the head of Patagonia is not that keen on why they sponsor athletes and everyone beneath them is like, no, 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 this is what we do. Just relax. Yeah. So what do you think is, is the primary expectation or what do you think a company gets out of having these folks out there with their brand doing these things? In the outdoor space, it's um, validation and product improvement, product design. So that's the basis of it. And that's how um, when you're always out there using it and developing it and you're getting new things with them. But um, North Face is um, the brand itself is, about exploration. It's athlete proven um, and it's out there and doing things. That's always been their brand. And 
and Patagonia. I love Yvonne and Melinda, great people. And, and they're, um, what they do for the environment is, is incredible. I mean, they'll be remembered for millennium from this point. But North Face, it's about expeditions, it's about athletes. And so once we begin working with an athlete, we try to help them achieve their goals. And then um, and that part is to give North Face a face, a face out there for people to to relate to the brand. So when we look at someone like uh, Daniel Woods, who's super strong boulder, to um, Simona Moro in Italy, who does winter alpine climbing, Ashima on a rock climbing end of things, um, that we they are out there and they help um, develop the, the product and add authenticity to the brand. And when um, we look at people, and there's, there's um, always out there, and because it's... Um, we're sharing an experience. We're not, we're not winning the hundred meter dash. So we're not mm-hmm. the fastest person. What we're doing is experiential, and we all left the world of human constraint of time, space, and rules, which is what we define most sports are. I throw a ball in there, and you just—it's those four ingredients, and you, you're better than the other humans on there. So we're more about how can we as humans work together and do something, and and mountain climbing's in that. So with the athletes that we look at, there's some. Um, kind of as the athlete team captain and what I look for in the people that are that we potentially might work with is uh, expertise at what they do. So being a top level, incredible um, climber. Um, intelligence, deep intelligence, so that they're aware of a worldly array of things. And then a charisma. So when people meet them, they're, they're like, a, wow, this is a nice person. They've got a great, friendly, exciting um, welcoming type um, experience because when we do an event like the Red Rock Rendezvous or the Uri Ice Festival, we'll meet thousands of people and you might only have four or five minutes to meet someone. So as that saying in the hotel business goes, there's only one chance for a first impression. It's sort of in the same way that um, you try to work with this. Cool. Um, yeah, I don't want to like, you know, spend that much time. Shop that, talk. But, yeah. But no, you it, got him. again, I, for me personally, I've, I've been in the game. Um, and you know, I actually had, I've had these like minor little sponsorships before I had the enormous cast and opportunities that I passed by. Um, but I'm always curious about it. I think people out there are wondering like, how's that guy? Why him? And everybody ends up falling back on this. Well, he doesn't even, or she doesn't even climb that hard. And then, you know, that's like the, always missing the point i think so i kind of like to reiterate this fact that you said charisma nice person you know out there inspiring people yeah it doesn't necessarily inspire someone to climb you know 15b it can inspire some people but other people just is like well that's not relatable to my experience whatsoever so and it's something it's fun to enable or encourage climbers to get out there Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. a with a brand like that so well, let me go back to my original question. You know, asking you that question actually was a little bit of a setup because I was sh- pretty sure that you didn't set it, you know, inside your van, you know, in 1989 or whatever, thinking I'm going to go on to to become this, uh, you know, world famous climber. But you are here now. Um, again, the superlatives and and the, the way your climbing partners speak of you is is the way I'm sure you spoke of mugs. And the way, and, and I've asked this to other climbers, this, you know, evolution to where suddenly you remember that kid who looked up to everybody and now you're looked up to. But I guess the question is, in your mind, what are the aspects of your personality maybe or your climbing that, A, you know, has gotten you this far and being successful on your ascent, but also in a lot of ways kept you alive and maybe you throw that to luck but someone as networked as you are, you know, you've lost a lot of people that you knew in climbing because you you are in the scene. And so your your connections to all these different people, whether it's casual or whether they were very close to you. So here you are. And looking back, what do you think it, it you can chalk it up to, if anything, um, your ability to, to be here yeah. at this point? Well, thank you. Um, I enjoy being outdoors. I like the... A night out, camping out, even from when I was a kid to, to now, just being able to go out and do a longer climb and see the stars. And um, that's really 
for me, a source of rejuvenation. And then the initial peaks that we hiked up with the, with our family in the Sierras were, were just that, hikes. And then it went on to rock climbing and, and trying Mount Rainier and things like that. But um, probably in my sense, the um, is a hyper-situational awareness. So I'm sitting here in the normal van, everything from the Catholic Church to the, the tractor that's out in that field um, is... I'm taking it in. And so in second grade, that was a total train wreck because I couldn't focus. Mm. I couldn't, everything was screaming for attention. But when I'm climbing, it's sort of, I process all that and it's a, um, it's a good way of doing it. So that's why um, I enjoy being in the mountains. But um, yeah, it is damn dangerous getting out in big ice and snow covered mountains. It's Mm -hmm. the ice and snow covering that really makes things dangerous. Building on this sort of thing, I, I mean, are you comfortable in this role, are you comfortable in this kind of, uh, I, I guess, in a lot of ways, you know, when I, again, we'll go back to Meru, you're watching, or when we're watching that movie, you know, you're in charge and you talk about handing off, you know, leads or, or handing off responsibilities, but that is still a, a, a leadership role. That's still a thing that you've decided like, okay, it's your lead. Yeah. Um, I mean, how comfortable are you in those situations? Is it something that you've grown to like? Is it something that it was was natural for you, or is it? Yeah, it comes natural. Just, I mean, it, it, it's there's a, there's a time for a transition. And hats off to uh, Jimmy and Renan for shooting the and filming the Meru climb while we were on the climb, both uh, in 2008 and 2011. And then for Jimmy's wife Chai, that edited the film um, along with uh, Bob Eisenhart, another the head chief editor. So thanks all four of them for building that Meru film. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's um, it, my life is out there in my life with uh, mugs and then with Alex and Jenny. And so that's um, huge props to, to them for making that film. But I never really, um, it was sort of this dream that I wanted to go to Meru on my first trip to India in 1988, we were at, uh, in Delhi with mugs and we went up to the Kishwar area. So, um, it's kind of opened up in the last two or three years, but we were there in 88 and Muggs was with us in uh, Delhi with Steve Quinlan to go out and have a go at Meru. And, um, it was classic. So here's a little tangent of a story. It was when Rambo came out and Muggs had this like long black Italian hair and he looked just like Rambo. <laughs> and so the, these, the folks on the motor scooters would come by and like, are you Rambo? And he'd be like, no, but Rambo's my brother. <laughs> If they had, they had cameras, they would have selfied them at that point. But anyways, we went to the Kishwar. We got hit by this huge storm. We we barely, we made it up this climb, but it was lower in elevation. It wasn't quite as serious as what Meru was. Came down and got trapped by the storm, the same storm that hit Muggs. There was a little bit of a um, slight avalanche, and um, he sublocated his shoulder, came down. So that was sort of the beginning of that dream. And then in 2003, tried Meru with Bruce Miller out of um, Boulder and Doug Chabot. And we tried it alpine style. Um, sort of really lightweight with a few screws. And we got up to where the snow was, and snow in the Himalayas in the northeasterly, northerly, and northwesterly aspects tends to be unconsolidated and kind of spooky just because the sun doesn't get there to change it as dramatically. Had a great time, came down, and then realized that to kind of climb the alpine stuff at the beginning with wall gear, moving it up, inching it up the wall, and then climbing the wall with a a portal edge sort of Yosemite style. So, but that was, um, it was nice to, to be there. And the last pitch for Jimmy, that was a good, I didn't think about it at the time. It was just, I'd led my block of pitches and I was happy to draft and (laughs) warm my toes up. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, there, there's like, uh, there's the narrative, um, in the film, you know, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, primarily stuck to like authentic but it is fun to watch from a climber standpoint and wonder like just that like okay you know it was set up in there as like oh you know handing the torch to this young climber blah 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 and here you are like no it was it was just like it's your turn <laughs> i'm tired and you finished this climb yeah like, and we didn't <laughs> and chai was the one she saw that and and, right. and as the storyteller's like oh we've got to have it be that and then that ties back to right. the um but it's great because it um that film will far um it'll, it'll outlive all of us i mean mm-hmm. it'll be around and it'll be sort of like this is what climbing is and mm-hmm. so 
having a film that doesn't trade on this, uh, the assumed stereotypes of what mm-hmm. climbing is, and that's what a lot of the popular climbing films do, and having it be made by climbers and um, narrated by climbers, um, it was really great. So it's been a, I'm totally thankful to the team for <clears throat> Jimmy and Renan for climbing with me, and then also the film team. So there's, um, uh, we're, it's it's in, it's incredible. So the people that have been motivated by it, it's um, last night a guy came up to me in the slideshow and. He's like, I've watched it 15 times, and he had he said he was 350 pounds, and he saw the film, and he was overweight, and he still was on his way to 512 Fitness, but he was totally psyched, and he came to mm-hmm. the presentation, and one or two people like that, that you've been able to change something in a positive way, is um, makes it all worthwhile. Can I ask another behind-the-scenes thing on that? Yeah. Line? And it goes back to that leadership role. Uh, I mean, one of the cruxes on the in the film, and, and we have to remember that it's a documentary, even if it's, you know, there's some graphics and all this sort of thing. But, you know, what's happening is real. And uh, the crux of the second climb is obviously Renan's, uh, his accident and the possibility of this stroke and everything else. Great scene when you guys are that day or that night that he's, he's like maybe, maybe dying. Maybe he's... Yeah. he's going to have to go down which means you all have to go down you know you capture the film like captures you guys sitting there just like grumpy and maybe that's like edited from another night because you probably all look like that every night (laughs) but either way it's it's telling a story there that i think a climber on a big climb with a partner who's not either pulling his weight or you're very worried about has gone through this like we're concerned about him but half of us, half of our mind is like, well, God damn it, we yeah. we want to finish this climb. Can you can you talk about either, you know, as a leadership role, your concern of having brought this guy up there that could could literally die on your watch, versus why did we bring this guy up here? We we need to do another climb. I mean, we're your better nature is one, but we have the dark nature too. Were you wrestling guys wrestling with that? And yeah, those moments? Well, it was, um, we, Renan was tired. We pitched the ledge, Renan hopped in. And then it was probably over a period of two hours that he, um, was out of sorts a little bit. And then, um, but we were fortunate where it happened that it had, it happened higher on the wall. Um, it would have been difficult. And once you start traversing, when you have to evac someone, things get really, really complicated. But if it's a straight down shot, there's a little bit. But I, um, we got the ledge together, and then I had a little miniature speaker, and I listened to Eddie Vedder all night long. <laughs> <laughs> the soundtrack from Into the Wild, and I listened to Renan breathe, Jimmy slap, and it was uh, Renan got up in the morning and was felt good and led a pitch. And it was nice. And then, mm-hmm. um, so it was... It was nice to have teamwork, and it's nice um, that type of climbing is. Um, I like the experience of being in a remote place with my friends, so like we can almost like shake each other and go, "Can you believe the sunrise?" And you're like, "No, that's great." <laughs> when you do these things solo, you're like, "Okay, I'm gonna talk to my camera now." Right, but right. <laughs> and, you know, we, where's that? I like that sense of camaraderie up on the mountain. Are you someone who who does the thought experiment? Okay, what if we wake up tomorrow and Renan's done? Or what if we wake up tomorrow and and he's he's almost you know gone? Yeah. Or are you the the are you more the guy who just you know pushes those thoughts out and says we're going to take it as it comes and <laughs> deal with it? No, we're um one of the an attribute to have in climbing is um, one is to the situational awareness which we talked about to be aware of, of everything that's around you, and um, the other one is uh, good communication with you know your your partner and knowing where you're at with that and that communication is is um when you're there working with him you're always in your mind going through the worst case risk analysis so if you for instance if you don't protect the second the second could then fall on really easy terrain um a crux move going over to easy terrain but you haven't protected the second they could be injured so anytime i'm in a situation and where i'm climbing and how my rope is in relation to my feet i'm thinking about Okay, if I fell here, I could flip, and so I need to be have the rope lay properly between my legs. So I'm always taking what could possibly be the most worst case scenario, and so even driving down the the 
the interstate today. When there's like a semi with sacks of concrete and one with gypsum board, and they're like, you're this far, six inches away, and everyone's going 70 miles an hour. And so there I'm like thinking, what could the worst case scenario be? And so when we were on Meru and with Renan being where he was, um, we had a friend, Chris Feigenshaw, who was with us at base uh, camp from Jackson. And so he um, did the distance shots um, and brought in the the lights and headlamps. And he was also there, um, kept communica- communication with my wife, Jennifer, in, uh, in Montana. And so it had something gone wrong, he would have... Um, been able to come help out but in the end it was um we 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 persevered and renan was strong and it was um it was just a beautiful experience but it's interesting that after that that scare the the levity and the humor in in the film is is a lot less than it was that in 2008 it was just absurd we're like okay we're running out of food but it wasn't there wasn't that really close call that made it serious right yeah and actually i noticed that as well like there's there's sort of a denouement. I mean, it's like the end of the film. You know, you've got the you've got Jimmy like on top yelling, you know, with his hands in the air, and and uh, but yeah, it really felt subdued, and you know, like like yeah, you guys had sort of passed through something, and now it was like. I don't know. I, I, I mean, maybe how would you explain it? That, that would be it. I mean, we there was we it was a close call, and it just all of a sudden, like when, oh, this is this is fucking serious. Yeah, yeah. and so um, having seen people succumb to altitude illness, cerebral um, edemas, it's very dangerous, and so, and especially we didn't know the full extent of what um, had happened. So that first day was twelve pitches of. Um, like a 50 to 70 degree ice frontal type thing with a couple rock pitches at the end. And we punched it starting out at midnight and climbed through till eight in the evening type of one of those type of days. So um, certainly dehydrated and not keeping enough calories in you. And then to bring that up to a, a new altitude. And at the end of the day, after having spent three expeditions and um, probably 30 nights camping on that wall, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a, it's wonderful. And I mean, everyone like extols the, oh, do it fast and light. And for that, for certain types of climbing, most certainly. But if you're wall climbing, all of a sudden it's steeper and you can't, to tackle that kind of terrain, you need to go a little bit heavier. And um, just the time you spend with your friends in those locations really makes it special. So how does Jimmy Chin look so good at the end of a climb like that while you guys look like complete <laughs> hell? Like my, my, my girlfriend, Steph. Yeah commented on yeah, that she's yeah. like he looks like he's only yeah. been up there for like a day yeah and you guys look like completely worth yeah jimmy's yeah <laughs> i mean his jacket was clean yeah. like everything was all yeah. in place yeah you know you, you guys like your helmets are crooked yeah. And you're like, <laughs> yeah we've got like burnt lips our yeah. noses are peeling it's amazing that yeah guy. it might be the fabio gene but yeah they're gonna change it from fabio to the jimmy yeah. gene because Jimmy so left Fabio behind. <laughs> so I kind of want to move a, a little bit away from that Meru climb specifically. Um, if anybody hasn't seen the film, it's it is definitely you know one of the greatest climbing films um, of all time in terms of I think relaying the experience uh, in in an authentic way and sort of giving us an idea of what you guys were up against up there. So I, you know you've been thanking the the crew that put it together. Um, but yeah, they did a fantastic job. Yeah. yeah thank you. And thank great. you to all you listeners and audience out there because um, there was a responsibility to tell what climbing really is and not like climbing around with nitroglycerin in your day pack and <laughs> yeah. parapenting and all that other wild stuff. So, right. Yeah. <clears throat> kept as far it real. as that stuff is. So let me talk to you a little bit about alpinism. Again, you, you, you're leading a, a group of, of climbers in and talking about the North Face, you know, encouraging you know, through support, through monetary support, whatever, you know, these people to go out and do these exceptionally rad things. Recently, I haven't really talked about this on the show, but, uh, you know, Scott Adamson and Kyle Dempster perished in in, uh, in Pakistan on what was probably, you know, had they done it, had been, you know, one of the futuristic climbs, as we like to say, of all time. You know, they there was a rescue operation, but behind the scenes, you know, the I was just like, you don't rescue people from a climb like that. You you rescue them from the base once they get down, but they're they're too out there. It's like they're they're on the hardest thing ever. As a 
guy who's set standards in that world, this, this, you know, fast and light, although you just talked about how that wasn't useful on Meru, but, you know, starting in the late seventies, when you were young, this movement towards cutting these safety ties, you know, uh, the fixed ropes and the porters and all these sorts of things and going into the mountains. Do you think that alpinism in light of what happened with Kyle and, and, and Scott, like, have we reached a, a limit to that in terms of, of how far out there, you know, that margin of safety is or that margin of risk? Um, are, are we going to, if this is continues to be sort of encouraged, are we just going to see more of these things in your opinion? where these guys just like throw themselves into the void and, and disappear. Yeah, that was <clears throat> a tragic gloss. And they were both super talented climbers. And Scott was great. He came up to uh, Montana every year for the ice festival and he helped course set. I mean, he could have been a competitor, but he put in the 10 days beforehand erecting the scaffolding and then figuring out the routes and being a, he was a great guy. Um, and Kyle strong beyond words. And my heart goes out to his loved ones and his families uh, with their loss up there. Himalayan climbing is, it's a, it's very risky. The mountains there are incredibly active. Um, the Indian subcontinent is going into Asia, the Asian landmass at the speed our fingernails grow, and hence everything is super jagged and recently exposed geologic time, which is what we want from a climbing standpoint. We go on there. And the challenge then comes that these mountains have snow and ice on them, and that was um, it was an avalanche probably that came down and took uh, Kyle and Scott's life. Um and people are going to continue to go in the mountains. I mean, just this post-monsoon season, Killian Journey was on the north side of Everest looking to do the Hornbine to um, the Japanese to Hornbine Kuwar for the fastest ascent there. And he's a, a legendary trail runner in his mid-20s, ran up Kilimanjaro really fast. So that sort of really going lightweight is a um, – there'll be more of a an emphasis to that. But I hope to – my view of where climbing is going is more – towards free climbing and free climbing is as much as you can in, in the aesthetics of the climb and not placing so much of a, a premium on, oh, did you do it in with one bivouac and two ice screws and one energy bar? And it's sort of like, yeah, this is great. Or do you really need to do that? Or, I mean, I'm like, okay, if I take two sets of cams instead of one set of cam, I can place gear faster. I can build more solid belays. I have a little extra fuel to get off of a mountain if I need and I can yard on it if I need to, rather than really parsing it down. So that the purpose of the climb becoming directed towards free climbing or as free as possible, and then choosing aesthetic routes on it and sort of the end result of that being more more noteworthy or not noteworthy, or more of personal value to the climbers that are doing it. A ton of respect for the folks that are racing up 8,000 meter peaks and, mm-hmm. and all of that and... Um, 53 i don't have i'm um, <laughs> i'm not in that game so mm-hmm. and there'll be continue to be people that uh define that game and and do more ascents so so again talking about like the you just mentioned oh i'm i'm not in that game i'm 52 is that what you just said? 53 i'll be 53. 54 in november 27th okay. so whenever um, this airs we're you're on top of your game man yeah you'll probably be 54 <laughs> by the time this, this comes in so looking again at the arc of, of of your life you in the film you talk a lot about mugs or the film talks a lot about mug stump um and can you tell us a little bit more about your personal mentorship um on both sides of the game you know besides monk mugs if not getting mentored directly like who did you look up to uh maybe even historically uh before him or someone maybe that was long out of the game before you even ever started just the you know, the, yeah. the Gaston Rubafes and those sorts of people. And also, other than, you know, Jimmy seems to be someone that, although he was extremely accomplished by the time you guys started climbing together already, there was a mentorship there. You know, are there other folks you can point to to having you think, you know, put on this sort of path towards towards uh, climbing? Yeah, great. Well, going back to when starting out with our family and getting out in the backcountry. So my dad and his uh, buddy Bob, and so they had like leather boots with fibrum soles, and they uh, wore knickers. And we learned to rappel with Goldline, and they were sort of 
backcountry woodsmanship. And so it was before climbing gym. So you became really good at backpacking. And then if you excelled at backpacking and being a good scout, then you would kind of climbing was that next level. So that was um, sort of the wilderness preparedness that came from my dad and his buddies when I was really young. It was really helpful to have that grow into it. And then when I became aware of climbing, probably in the late 70s and then um, starting in 1981, when I moved to Salt Lake City, really climbing a bunch there, there was some um, looking up to a lot of these, the, the classic figures. Um, and Salt Lake was a great place to be because there was some um, ice climbing, skiing, um, three or four different types of rock and a really great place to, to go to university and to live for 15 years. So, but I would, um, I would read tale of guys like Willow Weltzenbach, who I was introduced to in the climbing ice book by Yvonne Chouinard and how he had transformed the game to climbing with front points and doing these classic, uh, steep ice routes in the Western Alps in a day and a push and things like that. So um, a lot of respect for them. And then um, Doug Scott in the Southwest face of Everest. I mean, when I first sort of thought of climbing and down jackets and tents and shivering and huddling down and all that, and um, it was all before competition climbing and Lycra and all that. I mean, I kind of, that was my introduction to it and what they did on the southwest face of Everest was cutting edge I mean Everest was hadn't been it wasn't the 90s when it became sullied by commercialism so it was still a big thing that they had done and I remember like wow that's so cool and Doug Scott on the summit of Everest with and you know with Dougal Haston and the classic pictures and something that was really cutting edge and that was um, there was books that came with that and so that was um where I got a lot of that mentorship and inspiration for Himalayan climbing. And then Muggs, he was uh, a mentor of mine in Salt Lake City, and we, I was uh, climbing at the Gate Buttress one day and after an afternoon shower, so the circuit was always to go up the this little circuit of five, six, five, sevens after the shower. If someone had bailed, <laughs> it'd be like, go fishing for a stopper or a carabiner. <laughs> this, but anyway, he was down there in his van. We came back, and I mean, of course, we all know who Muggs was at the time, and he was just so cool. And he talked to me, and, I was, and we started doing climbs together. We went down to the desert and Fisher Towers and in Zion, and trip to Alaska um, and a couple other places. But it was good to have him. Um, he liked that mentorship and to pass that on. So I also had strong knees because I was in my twenties and he'd injured his knees playing football. So being able to help him with the load carrying was a, a big part. What was the age of, difference? Well, mugs, um, I think 14 years. Okay. So yeah, a there's generation of, a generation. Sense, yeah. 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 You'll tend in a human generation. They define by the world health organization as 20 years globally on an average, but I think a climbing generation is probably every 14, 15 years. And if we look at the, differences in how things have changed from the painter pants to rat bolting to lycra to indoor climbing to sanctioned climbing um, and dry tooling how that's changed all these changes in the sport that I mean, it shows you how alive and dynamic mm -hmm. climbing is so yeah it's uh it's kind of a 10-year almost it seems like almost a decade yeah like, yeah each decade sort of defines itself but anyway uh, i interrupted that so back to your mentor yeah then mugs was great and he would always um like, oh, I know I can do it. Let's see if you can. And and so there was, um, but he was, he was strict and stern. So he had, um, his mentor was Joe Paterno of football fame. So he played at uh, Penn State. And so he would tell, tell me these, like, we'd be like huddled up in a tent getting ready to go to the summit. And he'd be like, yeah, this is like running out into the orange bowl and <laughs> playing football. And he absolutely hated football by the time he, I mean, he just, I mean, he didn't even want to touch a football or watch it. I mean, because it took his knees away from him, and he, he, he wished he had been introduced to climbing at a younger age. Mm -hmm. I guess there's again, I'm I'm sort of digging at this evolution thing, and uh, and it's not ever something that we planned. But uh, at what point did you realize that you sort of had this wisdom or 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 knowledge? or experience that you thought, okay, I can offer this to other climbers. And did that happen naturally? Or was it something that you maybe felt a debt to do in terms of the people who had done it for you? Yeah. Um, it was a natural progression. My, there was time when I was mentored and then for the period, say from, 
um, 92 to 99 when I climbed with Alex Lowe and he was my main partner. That was, we were, there was parody there. We were both after the same goal and he was stronger. He was Alex. He trained like a fiend, but we complimented each other. So we had similar reserves and stamina for being in the mountains. And after his passing, then probably a year or two after that in climbing in Montana. And, um, that was my first trip that I did with Jimmy Chin in 2001 was this, um, it was now I it began my turn to, to give something back. And it's so rewarding and, and to, to help out and to do that. And, um, the trip I did last year in November, um, with a 25 year old climber, David Lama, and we're going back again this year. And there's nothing I can teach him about climbing. He's such a stronger, a better climber than I ever was at my peak time and at his, his age even, but just to, to be with him, but to, to kind of, um, little nuances and how you prepare a stove and how you bivy and, and how you time your base camp and those sort of things, being able to, to share that with him and then, um, get on my end, get motivated and excited by his ability and his motivation. It's, I guess it would be important on your level to find the, the person who's receptive to all this. Yeah. Cause while you were saying that, you know, I, uh, I just can imagine that, Having, I mean, the fact that I'm a, I'm, I was a 20 something year old guy means that, you know, there's times when I wasn't receptive to, to being told these things that I thought I already knew, you know? So I, I would imagine that with this, this sort of thing happening, happening naturally, that person has to come along who's going to be receptive to it. And maybe at a point in their climbing where they're receptive to it when, maybe five years before they, they weren't, Yeah, you know, and, and the fact that you brought up David Lama is interesting because, um, you know, there was backlash against him with the Saratori thing with the Red Bull sort of, you know, media machine. And I remember seeing statements by him, whether it was a video or it was a written statement, I can't remember, you know, talking about like that did change my way of thinking. And so, you know, just thinking about the idea of mentorship seems very, very uh, maybe natural and 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 kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of altruistic, but the but the mentee, the person, has to be receptive. Yeah, man, climbers aren't always like that. And there's not that much of a history here in the United States. And it, um, I went to the Czech Republic, and we went and climbed the sandstone towers, and you climb a grade or two easier than what you normally would at home and you get used to it and you figure out the runouts and then afterwards I was the guest and we showed some slides and they all convened on a beer pub and it was there was this great from the old codgers there that that were into these young kids that were trying to prove themselves and establishing the new roots and it was and they do this every night so that kind of um because we grow up in climbing here like in colorado and southern california the cascades the northeast and each one of these areas has its own community of climbers that uh, build upon it so but it's um finding a way to um help someone show you the ropes because you can't learn to climb in a vote in a void if you want to become a distance runner lace your sneakers up and run up the mountain for five hours and you're there. Your technique and your diet and aerobic. But to do climbing, whether from sport climbing to wall climbing, everything except for bouldering, which you can do barefoot and is super elemental to understand. But once you bring the systems in there, there needs to be a transfer of knowledge. And so someone shared with us, our generation, what belaying was and what, I mean, all that has been knowledge that's passed on. And if we can hold on to that knowledge, improve it, add something to it, and then pass it on to the next generation, we'll continue to improve the the style and the degree of difficulty that climbing's at. You you have how many adopted kids? Three boys. Three boys. Any of them climb? They Seriously? Anyone? Not like they're like, I'm going to the gym at <laughs> seven in the morning. They're not right. like there with me. But they, yeah, Max and I... Um, we Max, Sam, and I have done uh, Mount Rainier, and so they, yeah, we come out and we go climb five nine and and do that stuff. But um, yeah, Max is in the um, outdoor business, so he's a freelance photographer and, yeah. and videographer. And Sam's um, makes film, and Isaac's uh, still in university in Bellingham, Washington. So yeah, I just thought of that because I was thinking about what I said about being receptive and like teenage 
boys anyway are not always the most receptive to to advice or whatever yeah. from their dad or their their stepfather in your case or whatever. Yeah, they'll take the idea and they'll 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 like <laughs> crumple it and say, "Oh, that's not good." But then they'll they'll, they'll at least have thought about it, and then they'll they'll take that idea back out and put it into their life. So. Yeah, and and hopefully, I mean, you don't seem like the kind of guy that would force anything down down their throats in terms of of you have to become a climber. Which no, is, yeah. we have Jennifer and Jennifer, my wife, is awesome. She's still believes in me, and we have a great partnership in being able to get out and go climbing. But three things for kids, and they were um, learn to play an instrument, learn a second language, and go to university. So <laughs> that was your third. three rules. Yeah, three rules. <laughs> no, or three three asks three. Right. Um, because you want to have um, guidelines and expectations for children. And it was so great to see you this morning with Miles, and he's six months old, and the future he has and how caring you are in these these first five years and how important they are in a child's development. And you'll be able to really um, – it's a wonderful journey. Ahead. Oh, thanks. Who of you and yeah, your wife. I'm so. looking forward to it. He's, he's been <laughs> awesome. So. Um, yeah, so – you know, we we were going down these mentors, and of course, the two that are are prominent in the film, in your life, and in that conversation were Muggs and and uh, Alex. And you know, it just I can't help but comment on the fact that both those guys are gone. And again, we talked about it earlier uh, that someone who's been in the game long enough, and I've said this to so many people, even if you're just a rock climber. If you're in the game long enough, you know, someone you know, at least an acquaintance, is going to pass. I mean, I guess that's just normal life, but obviously it's a dangerous sport. And when you get into alpinism, especially Himalayan um, alpinism, you know, it just, it's like, it's just like, unfortunately, you have to just know that it's, it's going to happen. So in terms of your life and, and this loss and people out there right now dealing with Kyle, dealing with Scott, um, what do you, do you have any advice? Do you have a way that you have been able to look at these things to come out of, you know, a darker side and into a lighter side or, um, you know, I mean, move on sounds callous, but that's almost the appropriate thing to do is at least move on from dwelling on it as a, as a horrible thing that happened. Yeah. One needs to make peace with it, make they're passing and understand that and not try to be angry or questioning or anything like that. So, and particularly with Kyle and Scott's passing, they were in their thirties. And at that age, their peer group for them, it's probably the first time that they have encountered mortality like that. And I was 29 when Muggs died and it just, it was, it was 1992 and it was so intense and so heavy. Um, and, and what it, what it did to me. And then again in 99 when Alex died and then this time I was right next to him. So I had the the proximity and the intenseness of that situation to go through. Um, and now as where I am now in my life, my father's passed away. And so we as a family came to terms with that and there. Um, but when you're Kyle's peers where they are today, I can feel for him and reaching out to um, – those that were closest to them and questioning, do I want to keep climbing? Is this what I want to do? And it's up to the individual. If you want to pursue something else in life, um, or if you find that climbing is what you want to do, it's um, it's difficult to uh, do. But at the end of the day, people can they always level this at us that as climbers, it's extremely selfish what we do because we receive all the benefit, the intrinsic reward of being in these great places and climbing without a rope and living life through the prism of risk, which makes it a more intense experience. But then they question, oh, we have families and and when something like that happens. And when someone passes away in the mountains, it's like a light bulb that pops one day when you throw the switch and it doesn't work anymore. That pain is um, it's short compared to what families and especially parents of, um, of climbers. And if the parents didn't really introduce the, the their offspring into climbing, their their son or daughter into climbing, and they don't particularly understand it, it's even more difficult. There's a lot of questioning that goes on there. But um, at the end of the day, we um, I climbing is a wonderful thing, and the risk is inherent to it. That's what makes it special. And we have to 
be as safe as we can in, in every given situation. And when you are with your friends, you're always there and present with them. And like I said, climbing forces us to live in the moment. And that's not just when you're making the clip on the third bolt, which is the ankle breaker bolt. It's about life. You're always like there. And so when you're with your friends, you're like, so good to see you. And <laughs> you mean that. So <clears throat> anyways, heavy subject. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a heavy subject and, and, um, you know, we, we pre-gamed a little bit. I'll, I'll tell the audience, you know, just kind of talking about that. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to run it by you that it, that it was cool that we talked about it, but I, I feel like in terms of your wisdom, again, as this, this guy who's been there and done it, I mean, that's another thing to share is, yeah. is the fact not only not, a, I mean, obviously what you just said was not. You didn't have a magic bullet that said, oh, yeah, here's how you deal with it. Yeah. You know, you, you whatever. You, you go back into the mountains. Yeah. But if only to say what you said, which is that I feel for you guys. You know, I was there. Look at me now. Yeah. I can, you can get through it. You can deal. You can continue to make a positive, yeah. you know, impact on the world, you know, having gone through these dark times that, I mean, frankly, if you survive, you're going to continue to go through them. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're not the one that we're mourning, yeah. if you keep climbing. Yeah. There was, um, one of your previous podcasts, you interviewed Stacy bear and great guy. And we've gone ice climbing, been out in the mountains and what we've gone through with, um, the, the survivor's guilt, um, is I mean, it's something that there's climbers out there that when your friend dies and they're next to you or someone, you know, um, or even if you're, there's an accident in Indian Creek and, you're part of the that community, that scene, that weekend. It deeply affects you, and so um, knowing that it's there, and knowing um, when you're in that dark space, find people that love you, and 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 you feel good about it. Because it's um, for me, it's it it's just a matter of time when my phone rings again, and it's not if it's it's when and who's next, and and, and we have to accept that and as part of the it's it's the very steepest price of any sport someone pays and we have to balance that is it worth the the joy and the happiness that climbing brings us and i still believe it is and i'm a life without purpose is, is isn't a life that's lived well and so i'm <laughs> i'm here I, I love to go climbing so I guess I'm just justifying it in a selfish way. <laughs> well, I, what you just said, what you just said is is also interesting in that when you just said what's the next phone call, yeah. um, is that you, you know you said that your father passed away. Now I'm a younger than you. I'm ten years, a little less than ten years younger than you are. And that phone call comment actually just brought it to my head. It's like if my parents, who you know are not super old but they're in that place where they have health issues and everything else when i get a random unexpected call like that phone rings and it's them it's like there's a part of my brain that's like whoa what's happened is yeah. there has something happened because eventually again eventually because we're humans i'm gonna get a call right and so to say oh climbing is is this one thing and and it's but it's the same as life. I mean, pe people are going to pass away. Yeah. Whether they end up happening young and makes us more sad or whether they live a long life and we're still sad. Yeah. I mean, if, if they go before we do. But God forbid I die before they do because that would kill them. Yeah. So anyway, I, I just I'm getting a little choked up thinking about it. But, but yeah, I mean, the idea that climbing is so much different. It, no, it's like everybody's going to go. Yeah. And the phone call is going to come and, and, you know, but you're right about, you know, the cohort in terms of, of maybe, of, of, you know, the younger climbers that go, it's like, yeah, that's the first one. And, uh, it's rough, you know, it's totally rough. Yeah. When you're, you're invincible. You're 20 something and, and someone around you close to you dies. It's yeah. Like, oh, it happens to someone else. It happens to the, the people that are less prepared. And, and then all of a sudden it's, it's you in there. And then even to people that are experienced climbers. So, and it's life is risk. I mean, automobiles are dangerous. Um, everything we do and we're here for a very short period of time, a very short period of time. And we only have one go. There's no 
we're not climbing five ten hand cracks. Right. <laughs> when I expire, I'm like, this carbon's going to be recycled for the next four and a half billion years. So right. that's I'm kind of grounded in that sense. So that's why I want to live each day to the fullest. Yeah. Well, the brakes might go out on this thing on the way down that hill we drove up. So <laughs> this could be it, the last reco- re- record. But um, so uh, we got to get come back. That's always it. Yeah. Keep it between the lines, yeah. rubber side down. Right. <laughs> We're all fallible. Yes, we are extremely fallible. So thanks a lot for coming, Conrad. You got anything else you want to tell us about? Um, no, you guys keep up the, uh, the good show and, um, yeah, let's psych to see Olympic, uh, climbing coming up in 2020. So it's going to change the game. Yeah. We look at, uh, in 2000 when they took the leashes off of ice tools for competition and then all of a sudden everyone was climbing without leashes and it totally changed the sport and made it safer and more enjoyable and more accessible. So having difficulty, speed and bouldering, um, three disciplines for one climber. The best climber is going to win. So, and all you folks out there pulling plastic, you got four years to <laughs> to become speed climbers. Yeah, <laughs> up your to game. Compete with so. the Russians, <laughs> who are, I think, the speed climbing masters at this point. Yeah, they still do those comps over there, don't they? Oh, uh, you get harnessed up on the back. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's you right. have to have two people to belay you. So it's a, the um, it's climbing. All right, thanks a lot, Conrad. Chris, thank you. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks again to Conrad for getting it done. It's funny how uh, what I've found is that some of the the most famous and professional cats are the ones who uh, make the time, get it done. Tommy was the same way. Tommy Caldwell was the same way. So was Alex Honnold, actually, way back in the day. I guess that's what it means to be a professional. Are we professional here at the Enormacast? Sort of. Not really. <laughs> anyway... In my big tirade about the holiday gift-giving, I forgot to mention that, of course, we have t-shirts at adiac.com, A-D-A-Y-A-K.com, some Normacast apparel. And if you get your address to me in time, and I will endeavor to, uh, to do this before Christmas to get some stickers to you before it's too late. So, you know, there'll be a certain cutoff date for that. But yeah, then you can pop those in the stocking, huh? And they're free. So just send me your address. Please print it in the email the way I can put it on the envelope so it's easy for me. Even with your name on it would be nice. All right, then. It was the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring. Not even a mouse. But you know what that mouse was doing? He was checking his fucking knot. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble? 